not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. And welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like The Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my recently released poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today I am holding space for Dennis Berry. You might know him from his podcast, The Funky Brain Podcast. And he's also got a book called Funky Wisdom. And Dennis joins me today to tell me his story of recovery. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Jean. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And I'm glad to chat with you. Now, you were kind enough to have me on your podcast a while back. And now it's your turn to tell your story here. Yes, I'm very excited. Love the opportunity. Well, our listeners are um, glad to meet you. I'm sure of that. And it's always kind of cool when we sort of cross, I don't know, cross chat with other podcasters because we all do things a little bit differently and we all have different messages. And I just think it's so neat to talk to other people that are doing this as well and and kind of, I don't know, shining their light from a, a different corner and in a different way. So I'm I'm always happy to connect with you. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you too. I know, and I think it's so cool because I don't know who knows or doesn't know, but you're in Canada, I'm in the U.S., and we've both done podcasts with people in Australia and U.K. I did one, I had a a guy from India. So it's cool that the whole world's connected and we can all share our messages. I know it is, and it's just in such juxtaposition to the fact that we're all also sort of locked down in our homes and feeling isolated in other ways that we get to connect <laughs> this way. So, oh, man, right, yeah. we are living in upside-down times right now. Okay, well, this show is yes, about yes. you. So, Dennis, tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Thanks, Jean. Well, that's funny that you say that. It's all about you. I remember walking into meetings early on in sobriety, and there was this woman, and she goes, well, everybody always said you're the most important person in the room when I went to my AA meetings early on. And she said, well, duh, I already knew that. <laughs> but anyway, um, so let's go back to uh, – I'll just start from the beginning. You know, when I was five years old, my grandmother told my mother, she said he worries like a little old man. You know, when I was five years old, I already was full of fear and insecurity, and I just had no idea how to handle all that, and I couldn't sleep, and um, I was just a scared little kid. Now, a lot of people are like that, and a lot of kids are like that, and some are able to grow out of it, and I never did. And, you know, you fast forward to 15 years old, and I took that first drink, and I remember it going down my throat. And I was thinking, ah, I don't have to feel that way anymore. You know, I don't have to feel anything anymore. This is great. And, you know, when I, because I do coaching, I'm a life coach for addiction recovery. And one of the things I say all the time is, uh, you know, the, the alcohol, the drugs, the food, 
the shopping, sex, whatever it is that you're addicted to, codependency, it's not really the problem. It's what I'm using to cope with my real problem, which is, in my case, it's my thinking. It's my brain. And I don't, I, I wasn't given the coping skills naturally that some people are. I don't think everybody is, but I wasn't given those coping skills to easily handle life's little um, challenges. So I always struggled with that. But from 15 years old is when I started drinking and, you know, a lot of that pain went away. And then you fast forward to I was 31 years old and I never learned how to grow up still. And the reason most people fail in sobriety is what I talk about all the time is that, you know, you take away the drink, but there's still that thinking. And, you know, you have to, some people in AA or in the recovery world, we say we have to fill that God-sized hole, or we have to change that. We only have to change one thing, and that's everything. I have to change the way I was living, the way I think, the people I hang out with, the places that I go. And a lot of people will say, I'm not going to drink, but they don't change any of those things. And there's no growth. And so the next day or shortly after you stop drinking, life kicks you in the, in the balls because that's what life does. You know, life can be challenging at times. And if you don't try to grow your body, mind, and spirit, if you're not trying to move in a healthy direction, you're going to most likely turn back to the drink, to the harmful behavior. So, you know, let's go back a little bit, and I'll just go back to, you know, I can't say that it was all awful. Like, there were fun times, too, which is why I kept drinking early on as a teenager, you know, from 15 to 18, and then I went to college, and that was fun for, like, a year, and then I started getting in trouble, and then it wasn't as much fun. But at that point, then I couldn't stop drinking. And then I, I was, I'm an old ski guy, so I used to live in mountain towns and ski all the time. And then I became a chef, and I led that type of lifestyle. And it was fun. Again, there were, there were times when it was fun, but, you know, I was stuck in that lifestyle, and I couldn't get out. And then it just started becoming more painful, and I got in more trouble, and I couldn't have a relationship, and I couldn't manage my finances, and I couldn't stay healthy. And, you know, all of a sudden, 10 years went by. And then I moved uh, out of the mountains into the suburbia world, and I tried to pretend to be an adult. But I still wasn't growing up. And at the end there, I, was, I had a, a decent job as, uh, in sales for a big food distribution company. And I was really proud of that job. I learned a lot about sales, and it was just like my first like, grown-up job at the age of 27, I think. And... Um, you know, I was doing that, and things were they were going okay. I did pretty well at it, and then I got in a really bad drunken car accident on November 15th of 2002 out here in Colorado. I was driving down the Rocky Mountains, and I rolled my truck three times doing, like, 75 miles an hour. Rolled into a one of those big, huge highway signs, knocked that sign over, and that sign actually saved me from rolling into the Clear Creek out here, which is a, a big uh, river that runs all the way down the side of the Rocky Mountains. And uh, there was blood coming out of my head. I couldn't walk. My legs were bruised from my waist down to my feet. And, you know, I got in trouble. I got DUI, and then I, um, I, that, I mean, that was pretty serious. You know, and you would think that would be enough 
for me to stop drinking. And I think I stopped drinking for maybe four, three or four, maybe five days. And, you know, then I'm, I was able to walk again. The bruises went away. And uh, and I started drinking again. That's insane thinking, insane behavior. You know, and to go back a little further, when I was 20 years old, I, I think 20 or 21, I can't remember, um, I was at a party drinking a, a lot of tequila and whatever else. The tequila is what I remember. And I left that party, and I drove about a couple hundred feet, and I drove my car into a house. Again, that's not normal behavior. So uh, when a, if a normal drinker, whatever that might look like, you know, drives their car into a house or rolls their car coming down um, from the mountains and almost dies, they say, you know what, I probably shouldn't drink anymore. This isn't going well. And I didn't have that power to stop. And um, so let's fast forward you to um, I had to sign a, a return to work agreement after that accident saying that I wouldn't drink anymore, which, of course, I signed, but I couldn't stop drinking. So they found out that I was drinking. And on March 27th, 2003, I lost my job. I got fired. And they gave me a severance package. And I went on a bender because I had reached my end. And I just didn't want to live anymore. And that's a funny thing, funny, not funny, but sad sometimes that people say is one of my biggest problems is I kept waking up every day. It was a problem because I just didn't want to live anymore. And, you know, and I've been to meetings, you know, years ago. I remember going to a, an AA meeting. It was a speaker meeting in the first, like, year or two of sobriety. And there was a woman there who she was the speaker, and she was sober maybe 15 years or something. And she was there because she drank two shooters of vodka every day, two little shots of vodka. That's all she drank. And to me, I was like, that's not even enough to make a drink. Like, I drink two shooters of vodka before I get out of bed. But to her, her life had become unmanageable. It became a problem. And I'm not sure exactly what happened. I think she might have uh, hit her kid or something. Something that happened that was, to her, really bad. So she stopped drinking. She became sober. And what I've learned now that I've been sober for a long time is that it's not a not drinking contest. It's not about not drinking. It's about growing up and looking the world in the eye. It's about what we call emotional sobriety. And that's what I strive for every day. It's the way that I react to situations. It's the way that I feel about myself. Do I love myself? Do I respect myself? How do I treat other people? Am I helping other people? Am I thinking about myself less and trying to see how I can contribute more to the world? Am I working hard in my life? Am I taking care of my body? Am I feeding myself healthy food and drinking water? That's what sobriety means to me today. It's when I wake up in the morning, instead of looking at something that's going to be disturbing, like politics or something else that's really not as important as everybody makes it out to be, and I get frustrated before I even get out of bed, that's the way my day's going to go. But if I can wake up and get my mind straight, and maybe do some meditation or some exercise. I like to write, too. I like to see, how's my day going to go today? And I put that day together. That's called sobriety to me. You know, that's maturity. It's growing up, albeit that I'm 48 years old and I'm doing it a little later in life. But I am working in that, in that direction almost constantly. And I have a coach and a mentor, too. 
because I think it's important, you know, in AA, there's sponsorship. Uh, outside of AA, which I think it's important to have a coach or a mentor or somebody outside to keep you accountable and, um, you know, to hold your feet to the fire and make sure you're living that life of dignity, honesty, and, um, you know, pushing towards your goals in the right direction. And, uh, you know, I think without having that person in your life or multiple people, you can have multiple mentors in your life. I was taught have an expert in every area of your life. I'm not a lawyer. If I need to go to court, I need a lawyer. If I get sick, I need a doctor. I don't like doing my taxes, so I have to hire an accountant every year because I just hate doing that. But whatever that means to you, I am not a spiritual giant. I need help in that field. I need help with my life, with keeping me on track to achieve my goals. And so I have multiple mentors in my life. I have one that I'm accountable to. Every week he helps me make sure I'm on track with my goals and working on the right things to get me where I want to be in life. And, uh, you know, all this that you're hearing, if you're new in sobriety, it took me a long time to get to this point. And the reason I do what I do, and I think what Jean does, what she does, is that if we could shorten your learning curve, that would be great. You know, I went through a lot of pain, and a lot of pain in my life was in sobriety. You know, I wish I could tell you that I stopped drinking and I make a million dollars and my health gets better and I can manage relationships well and everything's perfect, and that's just not the way it goes. But I can manage it better, and I have choices, though, now that I, I never had before. So that's what sobriety means to me. What happened, you know, early on, it was like what it was like. I was crazy maniac. It was fun, and then it became less fun. What happened was I got in car accidents. I got in trouble, and um, my life wasn't going the way I was, you know, hoping for it to. And I had no idea how to get there on my own. And what it's like now is, you know, I have a great life. I'll tell, I'll share something with you guys right now. Is I'm going through a, an awful, sad separation. From I was engaged from my fiance for over eight years, and uh, this has been like the hardest period of my life. But I haven't drank. I haven't thought about picking up a drink. I stay focused on what it is I need to do every day. You know, we do the next right thing. And um, sometimes the next right thing is, like, go for a walk or get some ice cream. You know, take care of yourself. And I'm getting through it just fine. My life is turning out really well, but it took a long time to get here. You know, it's 100 miles into the woods and it's 100 miles back out. But the good news is that 100-mile trip back out of the woods it doesn't have to take as long or be as painful as that 100 miles into the woods. So that's what it's like for me today, Gene. I hope that um, covered enough stuff for you there. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. And you mentioned there that you're going through something big in your life right now that's been difficult and sad and not easy. And if you were holding out a secret list in your mind of, okay, these are the, these are the reasons that I would allow myself to relapse, <laughs> you know, and then yeah. I think, I think some people have that secret list without even knowing it. You know, if my relationship, um, if my relationship breaks down or if I got a diagnosis of cancer or, you know, I think there's like the big terrible things that we dread in life, that that might be a reason to relapse. Um, so tell me why your sobriety is serving you through this time. 
instead of making it harder. Yeah, interesting, because, uh, again, if I was to pick up a drink, you know, they say there's nothing I'm going through that a drink is going to make better. There's uh-huh. nothing I'm going through that smoking a joint is going to make better. There's nothing I'm going through that eating a whole chocolate cake is going to make better. All those are, are distractions. For one, you know, the way that you and I drank, that, that alcoholic behavior to excess. And that that I would actually revert back to you know, harmful behavior, and I wouldn't be able to uh, be productive in life. So, you know, luckily I'm in a place where I don't, my brain doesn't go there anymore. It doesn't mean I'm immune. It means uh, I've integrated healthy behaviors into my life that are more intuitive than going for a drink. So I call people, I talk to people every single day, and I exercise every day. This morning I meditated for, I want to say, 20 or 30 minutes, but I had a busy day. Yesterday, I meditated for an hour and a half on top of a mountain. You know, I went for a long hike. So these are things that I do intuitively now in my life, but it's also been a long time, 17 years now. The first couple years, there was a struggle, you know, and I I went through some tough relationship um, problems. I've been through it all in sobriety, relationship stuff, health stuff, financial stuff. I made a million dollars. I lost a million dollars. Like I, you know, life just keeps coming at you. So it's about equipping yourself to stay healthy and strong during those tough times. And I, that's where I am right now. And, you know, they, there's that whole one day at a time thing. And, uh, you know, if, as long as I keep pushing in the, the right direction, then I'll be there tomorrow, too. So what does your recovery look like at 17 years sober? Do you go to meetings on the regular? I know right now we're recording this, you know, eight months into the pandemic or however long it's been. Eight years? How long have we been in lockdown? Six months? I don't even know. <laughs> uh, yeah. All I know is I have For the 27 years. I have colors now. <laughs> it's that long. <laughs> right. so, uh, but what does, you know, what? What does it look like for you? What do you do to support just like the, the um, what are the cornerstones of your recovery, practically speaking, day to day? You mentioned meditation. I know that's really important to you. It is, yeah. And, you know, I, I pop into an occasional meeting. I am not the, I'm not a, um, probably a good example on that front. But I, like I said, I surround myself with, uh, with a healthy support system all over the place. So, you know, I did go to a meeting a couple of weeks ago, and, um, you know, and I've connected with old friends. I have lifelong relationships with people in AA that I consider my family now, and, uh, but I also have my coach, and, you know, we're, we're constantly working on improving ourselves. That's what's really important to take note in my, in, in the message that I like to get across. It's like, you know, I was always taught you have to be pushing uphill. If you're not pushing uphill, you're sliding back downhill. There's no planing out. But what I want to, you know, make clear is, like, pushing uphill doesn't necessarily mean struggling. It just means striving to be better than you were yesterday. And that comes from doing the things I said. You know, early on in sobriety, I went to rehab. Like, a lot of people may be listening to this. Or um, just early in sobriety, you hear a lot of things like this. You have to fill your toolbox up, your toolkit, whatever that, whatever that you call that. But those tools, and it sounds corny at first. You're like, what's that toolbox? 
But what it is is everything that I mentioned. And they've, those things have become intuitive in my life. Meditation is a tool. Picking up the phone and calling somebody in sobriety is a tool. Um, you know, surrounding yourself with healthy people is a tool. Surround yourself with people that are better than you. If you hang out with five millionaires, you're going to be the next millionaire. If you hang out with five, you know, drunken people doing shots on a bar stool, guess what's going to happen? So these are all tools that I have in my toolbox, and those have become my normal way of living. Just like early on from 15 years old, drinking became my normal way of living. So I had to reverse that behavior. So, yes, meetings are part of that. If you if you go to AA or if you're in AA, keep going to meetings and surround yourself with sober people and go out and have coffee. You know, the, what do we say? The meeting is the, it's the uh, intro. You know, that's where we go meet. And then we have to go out and build relationships outside of that. And then... that skill transfers into life, you know, so I could build work relationships. I could build romantic relationships. I could build healthy fitness relationships with people. You know, it's about staying sober doesn't, staying sober for a long period of time doesn't mean I'm better than you. It just means that I've been through a few more things and I can help get you there too. And these are the ways that I do that. You know, I found, I find it goes by really fast. Like when I first quit drinking, Two weeks seemed like it was impossible. I mean, I couldn't get a couple days together in the beginning, and I I stopped and started a million times. And then when I did finally quit for good, uh, knock on wood, you know, it stuck. But I can't believe how fast years add up when in the beginning, hours and days seem to have passed so slowly. Um, Do you still celebrate milestones? Yeah, absolutely. So, And that's funny you say that. It's really funny you say that. So when I was early on, so I was 31 when I got sober, and I remember, you know, being in those first two years of sobriety, and you look around the room, and, you know, there'll be an old-timer there with 30 years of sobriety. And, you know, at first I would be like, God, I wish I had 30 years of sobriety. But then what I came to realize is, like, you know, if I had 30 years of sobriety, I would be 61 years old. I didn't want to be 61 years old. I was like, I'm 31 years old. You know, and time is going by just fast enough, you know, just like slow down, enjoy those moments. You know, one of the cool things about sobriety, and uh, it's one of the reasons, and this is kind of like, you know, advanced thinking. You don't think about this right away, but, you know, the reason I drank is because I I didn't want to feel. And, you know, and I get that way in sobriety, too. I don't want to feel this heartache. I don't want to feel this sadness. I don't want to feel this anger. Even being happy sometimes could be overwhelming. Like, I didn't know how to feel. So what happened is whenever those types of feelings came up, or, you know, you'll learn in sobriety a lot about resentment. You know, when these resentments come up, rather than find a way through it, I would go drink. And, you know, I learned along the way that it's okay to feel. You know, if I am feeling sad, sit for a few minutes and feel that sadness, feel that pain, whatever it is, there's a message there. And then you're going to learn to grow through it, and you're going to grow, actually. Your awareness is going to grow. And you're going to intuitively learn what's those promises. I'm going to intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle me. I remember talking with people in, in a bar, even, with people that didn't drink the way I did, and nobody did. But... You know, they would know what to say, when to say it. They were funny and full of laughter and having 
a nice life. And I was like, I just didn't know how to communicate that way or act that way. And I wondered, how did they do that? How did they learn how to do that? But now, I mean, some, and sometimes I could pull that off now, some of that mature stuff, you know, and that's pretty <laughs> cool. But I think you know it's just like enjoy the date, enjoy the happiness, enjoy the nice relationships. But you know what? Experience the sadness, too. You know, experience some of that pain. Grow to a new level. And instead of, you know, eating a pound of cookies because you're overwhelmed, or instead of going shopping and spending money you don't have, sit still for a little bit and feel that pain. Feel why you're doing that. Why are you distracting yourself from feeling? That's what sobriety means to me. You know, what comes to mind as you say that, Dennis, is that the idea that we are emotionally stuck at whatever age we were at when we started using or um, hitting pause on our feelings. Like I think for a lot of us, um, that's that was sort of what we were numbing out with. And it may not have been originally with drugs or alcohol. You know, it could even start younger on with other behaviors. And so what I've heard from other guests sometimes is, you know, they kind of got stuck at that younger age and they had a lot of growing up to do when they got clean and sober and had to start doing what you just said, actually feeling the feelings, good and bad, and learning how to process them as an adult instead of as a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old. So have you found that um, at age 30 drinking, did you find that there was your life where you maybe were kind of emotionally 15? Absolutely. I mean... (laughs) Some people might tell you that I'm still there, but we won't get into that. What what I would say is absolutely that's the truth, at least in my case, you know, when I was I had the brain of a 15-year-old at age 31. And, you know, it's painful growing up in your 30s and 40s, but it does happen. You know, and, and like I said, it's just it's constant steps in the right direction, trying to grow and stub your toe, make mistakes. You know, when we talk about the... One thing that just comes to mind real quick here is, um, you know, when I was drinking at the end, I was just drinking to pass out so I can sleep for a few hours. And what I would do is I would lock myself in my apartment and I had four bottles of red wine and a pint of Jack Daniels and my cigarettes and the remote controls and the, the, uh, my phones, like everything lined up and I shut the curtains and the blinds to make sure no sunlight was getting in. And I would just sit there and numb out from the world. Because I had no ability to cope, and you know, when people when you get sober and people are like, uh, you know, do I have to avoid going here? Or do I have to avoid going there? And I say, uh, well, you know, at first maybe there's places you shouldn't go, just because why would you go to the bar to watch the football game if you're going to get drunk? You know, if you're scared of doing that, don't go. But eventually, you want to stay sober so you can go anywhere on earth. I was avoiding going places when I was drunk. It's a paradox. So I don't want to avoid anything. That's childish behavior. And it took me a long time to, to grow up. And, but I'll just share this. You know, I remember, so I started drinking when I was 15. And I remember at 15 years of sobriety, which was a couple of years ago, I remember getting that, that chip. I went to AA and I got that chip. And I was like, 
know, I figured, I, I thought something was going to change because people always said, when you were sober, as long as you were drinking, now you got something there. And I remember, and I got that chip, and you know what? It wasn't much different. It's just life. Life is what you make out of it. So, you know, I hit that 15. I was sober for as long as I drank. I've been sober longer now than I drank, and life is still challenging. You know, so you have to learn how to enjoy it, make make it fun, make it happy, make it enjoyable. Start a business, have a relationship, take care of your health. Like, do these things that a lot of people don't get a chance to do because now that you're sober, you do have a chance. One thing you talked about in your book is honesty and the importance of honesty in recovery. That was something that was a revelation to me when I first heard it in early sobriety. I didn't get sober going to 12-step meetings, but I definitely the material and examined the ideas behind the 12 steps and tried to adapt them to my own sort of version of recovery. And um, the idea of being radically honest was like, wow, because my life was built around, like, I, I never even thought about really being honest. I just thought about getting by. So I would say whatever I had to say in order to be liked or accepted or, you know, Um, get through the moment. So you talk about most people are what you call cash register honest. Um, Say what that is and and what is the kind of honesty that we need in sobriety? Right. And I think that the majority of the population is what we call cash register honest. Like if there's a $20 bill on the floor that somebody dropped, I think most people would pick it up and and give it to back to the owner, or we're not stealing stuff out of the store, or maybe you are, and that's another issue. But what I'm talking about is honest with yourself. You know, when you brought up, I mentioned honesty in the book, that's part of a bigger uh, principle that I was talking about is the how approach to life. How do I get sober? How do I have a successful life? How do I have successful relationships? It stands for honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. So it's part of a bigger equation. But that honesty is, you know, I'm honestly saying to myself, life isn't going the way I want it to. Because until I say that, and that means, you know, it could mean I'm drinking too much, that my, I'm obese, my, um, my relationship isn't going well, I'm cheating on my spouse, or, you know, whatever it is. You can't live that way. And uh, you can't, you also can't, fix a problem until you admit that it exists. So until I can say, you know what, I'm drinking too much, my life is falling apart, my health is bad, or whatever situation you're in, you know, once you admit that, now you have a chance of uh, fixing it. And then you give, then you move from that honesty into open-mindedness. You know, I'm, all right, I'm honestly, I'm in this pain because something's going wrong. Now I'm open to listening to new ways of living. And then I become willing to do things differently in order to get different results. So when I say honesty, it's just about living with integrity. And it's hard to be 100% honest all the time. I don't think most people, I don't think anybody really is 100% honest 100% of the time with themselves, you know, all the time, whether it's embellishing a story or whatever it is. I think that, um, you know, the, we're always, as long as you're always striving. But once I start putting chemicals in my body or numbing out on some level, then I lose my ability to be honest. 
at all. And then I, you know, harmful behaviors come in so many different forms. But, you know, I think the biggest gift is the awareness, right? And that which comes from pain. So once I'm in pain, then I'm like, I become aware. So once I put myself back in those positions of drinking or doing drugs or numbing out, it's hard to be dishonest anymore once you reach that level of honesty. But you have to keep trying. Something else I read in your book that has been really staying with me and looming large in my mind is the idea of what if you woke up today with only the things you gave thanks for yesterday? Talk about the importance of gratitude and how it helps us stay sober. Right. What's that? The, uh, the attitude of gratitude, you know, that gratefulness and, um, you know, a lot of the times when we get into, when if I'm sad, unhappy, upset, resentful, you know, insecure, full of fear, whatever it is, it's usually because I'm thinking about myself too much or I'm attached, right? So there's, if you go back to Buddha 2,500 years ago, he says that, you know, our attachments are the, for, are the cause of all of our suffering. And, you know, I'm not talking about your email attachments or, you know, things like that. I'm talking about our attachments to how life is supposed to be, how much I'm supposed to weigh, how much money I'm supposed to have, what my spouse is supposed to look like or act like or what house I'm supposed to be living in. And when I'm attached to those things and they're not going well or they're not going the way that I think they're supposed to, then I'm upset or I'm unhappy or I'm full of fear. So, you know, I think it's if I can shift my mind to the things that I do have and things that I am grateful for, then I bring that attitude into the day. Like, I'm healthy today. I'm Sometimes it's I'm breathing today. You know, there's always something to be grateful for. You know, I, uh, I had a video on LinkedIn that I shared from somebody. It was a guy who was born with one arm and no legs. And he was doing CrossFit. You know, there's a video of, of him doing pull-ups with his one arm and no legs and the tire flips and, you know, lifting the barbell over his head. And it's like, what's your excuse today? You know, why, why don't you have what you want? Well, if you're sober, you can work towards whatever it is that you want. Live in that gratitude. You know, if you keep living in lack, that's the way your life is going to go. If you keep being upset and blaming other people for your circumstances, you're going to stay stuck there. But if you can say, wow, you know what? Look where I am. I'm grateful for what I have today. Now I have a chance of getting over there now. You know, now I can go there next. I feel like there's a... Uh, uh a fine line connecting the dots between attachments, as you mentioned, and resentments and expectations, because the things we're attached to are the things we expect to come our way in life and then the things we resent when they don't. So um, there's, it's a little bit of a, a trap, isn't it? <laughs> in fact, I just had a guy on the my podcast recently, and he's not a sober guy. He's a, he's a normie, and, um, but he wrote a book, but it was about attachments or expectations. That's what it was, expectations, and he had a chart. He goes, am I happy? Yes. Okay, then you move to this side of the chart. Am I happy? No. Okay, well, do you have expectations? 
and then it goes into that. That's why you're unhappy. So, you know, if you can live in the moment, don't have these expectations or attachments to how things are supposed to be. Because uh, what do they say? Expectations are like pre-planned resentments, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then I need to let go of those resentments um, because if I, like, expectations ultimately do lead to resentments in most cases. And if I'm holding on to resentment towards somebody for something, I need to let that go. You know, one thing I learned is there are no justified resentments ever for any reason. And um, what I'm saying, if I can't forgive that person, because forgiveness is at the root of all spiritual, religious principles that ever have ever existed, they're all rooted in forgiveness. And so if I can't forgive somebody, then what I'm saying is in order for me to be happy, you need to change. And that's unlikely to happen. So what I need to do is I need to find a way to forgive this person. And that's where your sponsor, your mentor, your accountability partner, your coach comes into play because a lot of times it's hard for me to get there by myself. And, you know, the idea of AA is, you know, definitely a spiritually based program. So if I don't have a sponsor or a mentor around, I turn to God. And that's great. And that's a great principle to live by. But I also find it's great to have that human accountability partner too. And I think it helps you get to that place faster. I wrote down what you said. There are no justified resentments because that's a really hard one for me. Um, I, I mean, I understand the truth of it and I can see the power of it, but I really like to feel that, um, you know, my resentments are justified. <laughs> I'm attached to them. That's awesome. Yeah, and I feel that like would be nice. We, so um, let's dig into that a little bit because I feel like there could be some some muckiness into it. So when we talk about something that's let's say our principles or uh, our politics, which are usually closely aligned to our principles, um, I feel like part of the mess that we're in right now is that uh, you know socially. I'm in Canada, you're in the states, but I feel like society is in a lot of polarized discord, polarized discord. And I feel like that is because people are holding on to their justified resentments. I believe really strongly that this is how things should be. And I really resent that you feel differently. So um, I feel like that's kind of the, you know, that's the push and pull of it. So how do we take something as big as, you know, our beliefs or our principles and not resent other people who feel differently than we do. What what does that look like? How do we clean up that mess? If you could just solve society's problems right now with this answer, we'll be done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great question. And it really, there really is a simple answer. But again, it's simple, not easy all the time, right? But, you know, right, right. let's go back to a funny, a funny phrase that we hear all the time. Do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? So, you know, it really comes down. One of the hardest things that I've learned to be able to do, and I can only do it on occasion, is to let other people be right. And that comes from zipping it up. Keep quiet. Why do we need to share our opinion? That's where this discord is coming from. You know, we were taught growing up, don't share your political or religious views. So now instead of not sharing them, we share them on social media for a million people to see. 
right? So I think that we, we need to learn, all of us, if we all woke up and meditated, if we all woke up and did something healthy for ourselves instead of looking at what some politician somewhere is or is not doing for me, then we would have better days. You know, I think it's important to, if you're in a conversation with somebody and it's not going the way you want it to, say, hey, you know what? Say, you're right about that. And then walk away or shift the conversation to something else. Let them be right. You know, and these are things that take time to work on. But as long as you do stuff like, you know, have to defend your point of view because you need to be right, you're going to continue to be unhappy. You know, so can you, we just you, abandon you, the you argument to, without conceding our point of view? Like, do we have to give up what we believe in, or can we just say, um, I can hold space for two different opinions? Like, it's okay that we don't agree on this, and, you know, yeah. that's okay. So that is, is the that, way. Yeah, that, well, that's the way to peace. You know, that that is ultimately going to be the way that that we need to be in order to get to some peaceful resolution. Because if you think about it, I remember doing a, a little talk on this a while ago, but it's like, if you, you know, uh, fear, um, you know, anger, argument, these are all negative energies, right? So if somebody's arguing or they're stuck on their point of view, you have to bring positive energy into that conversation. So love, agreement, whatever whatever those positive energies are. If you're pushing back on a point of view, you're not going to win because it's a belief. It's a point of view. So it's like a Jewish person saying that Christianity is wrong or that Muslim, or uh, you know being a Muslim is wrong. But how, who's right and wrong? Like you, what you said, you have to agree to disagree and then shift the conversation to something else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a mature point of view to have. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. not saying be a doormat. I'm saying, uh, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? You know, and we always joke, well, when I'm right, I'm happy. You know, and when everybody else knows I'm right, I'm happy. But that's not true. That's a joke. You know, I, I want to be happy and content. And when people, when I'm surrounding myself with people that are arguing about politics, I remove myself. Yeah. That's just me. I feel like it's uh, easy to think that people we disagree with, and we hear this, um, the rhetoric that's out there right now, is that someone you disagree with, you know, they're crazy. (laughs) There's something wrong with them for believing this belief. (laughs) And and I, I remind myself, well, okay, but that, it makes sense to them. It's not that anybody is first of all let's abandon the word crazy but i mean just let's just think that well it makes sense to them you know and when um so it may not make sense to me but it, not doing it because they're lacking in t- intelligence they're doing it because they've thought about it and it makes sense and i find that's a little bit easier for me to swallow sometimes here's another thing i have a lot of resentments in traffic um i live in a fairly small city <laughs> traffic isn't a big part of my life but if someone cuts me off on the highway or even just you know goes zooming past me i used to feel like i'd take it kind of personally you know <laughs> like there was, an, yeah. there was a personal flight and um and i would get all kind of uptight about it and think to myself oh what a jerk and now i i tell myself well maybe they have diarrhea you know and i i hope they make it to the next <laughs> rest stop <laughs> 
always make You're like, I hope they have diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a, it's not a evil eye wish on them. It's, a, it's an attempt to be humorously compassionate of thinking like, maybe they're just in a hurry, you know, like maybe his wife's in labor. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. But, you know, I wrote a blog. Um, it's called, there's no stress in the right lane. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if you get into the left lane, and we're using this as, you know, a, as a metaphor for everything we're talking about right now. You can hop on the highway and get in the left lane and drive 14 miles an hour over the speed limit and try to get there as fast as you can and get angry at the person in front of you. And I know what you're talking about. That person cut me off. Or did they cut me off? Or did I know they were going to be getting over in that lane so I sped up so they couldn't get in? And now they cut <laughs> me off. You know, so it, it all depends on my frame of mind. So when I wake up in the morning, if I put my mind in the right direction, I have a better chance. And, you know, part of that, drive in the right lane. Drive the speed limit. Leave three minutes earlier so you don't have to be in the left lane and get full of anger and resentment and have people cut you off. There's no stress in the right lane. You have a choice on how you how your day is going to go and how your sobriety is going to go and how your life is going to go. And, uh, you know, as long as you don't drink or smoke weed or do whatever your harmful behavior is that's keeping you from getting where you want to be, then you have a chance and you have choices. You know, that's how I, I approach like everything. I like it. Uh, I know you to run. So before I let you go, tell our listeners where can they find you and how can they get your book? Awesome. Well, my book is on Amazon. It's Funky Wisdom, A Practical Guide to Life. It's in a couple other places, but um, you can get to everything that I do from DennisBerry.com. And uh, again, I'm a life coach for addiction recovery, alcoholism, and just all around life mastery. Whatever's going on in your life, wherever you want to go, I can help get you there. My um, tagline is kick your addiction and then master your life. And uh, like I said, everything's on DennisBerry.com. You can get to my podcast, which is the Funky Brain Podcast, which I also had Gene on, and we had a great, awesome talk. And uh, I appreciate your time. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being here. And listeners, be sure to check the show notes for links to uh, Dennis's site and everything we mentioned here. That's all for this week, everyone. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take good care. I own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Head on me. In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide. We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on. Shout it out.
person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I old, different Not proud, but that was me And when I face it Just want to be free 